I think the chances you have to, you know, find unexpected things are, are just just higher if you interact with uh, scientists from other disciplines. After the difficult part, to me, is to develop a common language. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Anna-Maria Lennon. Hello, I work on immune cell dynamics at the Curie Institute in Paris. And today I feel super excited to share my tips with the lonely pipette. Anna-Maria was born in Santiago in Chile, and she came to Paris to study for a master's in genetics, followed by a PhD with Marc Falouse at the Pasteur Institute. She moved to Harvard University, Massachusetts for a postdoc with Hida Plot, uh, working on antigen presentation. And then she moved back to France uh, to a research uh, scientist position with INSOM, the Medical Research Council. And in 2004, she set up her own team at the Curie Institute. Last year, she became director of the Department of Immunity and Cancer at the Curie Institute. Her team works at the interface between cell biology, immunology, and biophysics, studying the biological mechanisms that control the spatio-temporal regulation of antigen presentation. Anna Maria has won numerous prizes, including the INSOM Research Prize in 2018, the Grand Prix Charles de Forêt from the French Academy of Sciences. She was awarded both a starting and an advanced grant from the ERC, the European Research Council, and she is an elected member of uh, EMBO, the European Molecular Biology Organization, and an editor of both the Journal of Biology and the Journal of Cell Science. Anna Maria, thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipette. Thank you. So I just had a question of the master. Did you do the Magister de Genetique? Yes, I did. I ah. did the, the, the Master of Genetics, Human <laughs> Genetics. Okay. Yes. And then I found out I hate genetics. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. But I had to do that to find out. This was my kid dream, to be a geneticist. And, uh, and, and so I did this master. And then... Uh, I, yeah, I realized that I learned a lot, but I realized that was not my favorite um, subject. And this was because um, DNA does not move ah. in my head. <laughs> so I like things moving. It took me 10 years to realize that. But I think this was the main reason why, I mean, I loved doing the science during my PhD, but at the end, I felt like I need to go to something else. That's great. If you've listened to, to several episodes, uh, Anna Maria, we always start with a, a very famous question, which is the origin story. Uh, we wanted to talk with you because actually you were, um, you were referenced by a student who was really inspired by you, you and your work. Uh, oh, and she was nice. really uh, in admiration with your path <laughs> and what you said that day. So we wanted really to talk with you about your career and, and more and share it, this with uh, our listeners. So we'll start just with this right question. So can you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? 
So I decided to become a scientist very early on, um, guided by my name, because my name is Anna Maria Lennon, mm -hmm. and I'm named after my aunt, Anna Maria Lennon as well. And she was a researcher and uh, she was working in the U.S. at NIH. And when I was born, she made the trip to Chile uh, just for, for, for my birth and to meet me. And that's why they named me after her. And later on, she came to France and she was a CNRS researcher. And she took me to her lab at the age of eight. Whoa. And I loved it. I loved it. Uh, of course, I, I, I loved her <laughs> before loving the lab. But um, I think what I liked at that time, it was the idea to, to discover things I cannot see. So is she still alive? Is she? She is. She's 80 years old and <laughs> she's, she's retired now wow. for, for about uh, yeah, 15 years, something like that. She lives in Paris. She's the only family I have here, actually. Okay, great, great. So I published, thanks to her, I published a nature paper on the tau protein that binds microtubule the year of my birth. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was not me, but it's really funny that uh, it's sometimes great. You can people get your, confused. You can double your citation. <laughs> exactly. What a nice and I've experienced these funny things, like sometimes being in a committee and people saying, now you should get out because you have published with this person. <laughs> I have never done that. <laughs> and people getting really pissed because, of course, Anna Maria Lennon is not a very common name. So <laughs> never think that it could be someone from my family. Well, so, so do you remember specifically that day when you enter in the lab? What happened in your, in your mind? In your... Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> it is uh, correct to say what I re remember then because what my aunt was doing, because she was preparing neurons. Mm -hmm from uh, baby mice, I mean, from actually fetus, mouse fetus. So um, she was cutting the head out and to take the cells in the Petri dish. And uh, um, yes, she was doing that in a hood, I remember. I love this, the hood. And I didn't care for some reason about the, the baby mice death. <laughs> I don't know why. It's weird, I know. And then she was pipetting a lot and she was pipetting with her mouse. I remember that, <laughs> which today would be also <laughs> insane. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was used to, to happen. Acid, chloridic acid, she was pipetting with her, wow. <laughs> her mouse. <laughs> that was the time. <laughs> and yes, it was, it was another time. And um, everything she showed me that day uh, fascinated me. I even brought some, some tubes, like Eppendorf tubes home that I, I kept like a fetish for many years. <laughs> so, so if you hadn't become a scientist, what, what would you have been? If, if you hadn't met the other Anna Maria? So I think I would be a researcher, maybe in something else than science. Uh, but I think I would be a researcher, um, maybe in psychology, maybe psychoanalysis. I like a lot this, this, this uh, you know, researching about our mind our behavior um that that i feel always very fascinated by i've experienced it since myself <laughs> many years it's like researching on myself 
I, I love this. <laughs> I, I feel like it's a, it's like the same process. Than the and, and you move all the time. Yeah. So, so that's yes, <laughs> and I move all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm my favorite. It's a bit narcissistic, but I'm a fav- my favorite, favorite research object. object. <laughs> so, no, no, no. I like dendritic cells better than myself, <laughs> I think. <laughs> They're more interesting. Can you think of a, a moment when you, when you thought about leaving science? Never. No, absolutely never. No, no, I, I, it's, it's a real uh, voca- vocation. Do you yeah, say vocation in, yeah. uh, in, uh, in calling? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, n- with no doubting. Uh, it was not so easy because when I, so I grew up in France, um, until the age of 18, my parents were politic refugees. They left Chile, uh, when they were four years old. And uh, uh, when I was, sorry, they left Chile when I was four years old. And uh, uh, we lived in France for 14 years. So at the age of 18, they decided to go back to Chile because uh, the Pinochet, the dictator, have, had left the power. And, and then I, I, I thought, my God, I want to be a scientist. How am I going to do? And so I, I talked to my dad and to my aunt, of course, and, and we decided, okay, I will study biology in Chile. And then after four years, I will come back to do a PhD uh, in genetic in Pasteur. And this is what I did. Yeah, that, that was like a really <laughs> planned plan, like you, you wanted to Yes, plan. super plan. And, and after four years in Chile, I, I had made my life there. I had been very happy there. The, all the politics life, you know, going back to democracy was very exciting. I had a boyfriend and all entire family, everybody was really happy being back in Chile altogether. But still, I, I could not renounce to this project. So I had to come back to do my PhD in genetics. I didn't expect I wouldn't like genetics so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first surprise. But not enough to leave science. <laughs> Just change field. <laughs> so so it was really this kind of of, of, I can hear the passion be, be behind your, your words that, that brought you back to France. So, so was, it, was it difficult at this time like to get back to France doing the master? And- so what was difficult is, is, uh, was the first 10 days. So I, I perfectly remember that time uh, that I arrived and I had left my family. I had left my bof- boyfriend. I was alone in Paris because my aunt was leaving um, in the suburbs, so um, I had rented an apartment on my own. I mean, it was time to go out from home, and um, and I during ten days I cried. I was stopping in front of all travel agencies, looking at the price <laughs> uh, of the of the trip of the plane trip to go to back go to Chile. <laughs> and after ten days, I woke up one morning, and it was just maybe a couple of days after going do, having my first day in the lab, and I woke up my morning and one morning. And it was over. It was over. I was in my new life and uh, I was excited. And it was so funny because it was super brutal, brutal change of state. <laughs> I never experienced that again after. <laughs> so, so at the end, you came back for a master at this time. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong, uh, you went then for a postdoc after a PhD in France, you went for a postdoc in, in USA and then you came, you came back again in France. So why is that? Why is so much coming back to France? Why yes, not yes. Any, anywhere else? Well, 14 years in France, uh, I think, made me a bit French. <laughs> <laughs> Even so, I, I, I tend to resist to this. But, you know, from 4 to 18, those are crucial years. So it really defines uh, your, the way you, you built yourself. So I think I'm, part of me is, is 
clearly French. And um, during my uh, PhD at Pasteur, I met Guillaume Duminil, my husband. Uh, he's also a scientist. I mean, he just arrived to the lab when I was there, next lab, next door, and was kind of a, a coup de foudre, uh -huh. as you say in <laughs> France. And so we, we rapidly knew that we wanted to make our life together. So we went together to Boston, even though I left six months before him because he, he was not done uh, with his PhD and there was no way I could wait for him six months because I was uh, too impatient <laughs> to go to the next step. And, and then um, after we asked ourselves, what do we do? And, and I got offered from the university in Chile. And then we thought, well, we'll try both ways. We'll try both, both countries. And um, we got uh, offers uh, positions in Chile and position in France. We got the INSERM concours, him uh, one year before me and, and myself after. And then I thought, I mean, what type of science am I going to do in Chile? It's, it, I'm going to be able to do something, but it will never be something that satisfies my ambition. I mean, and when I say ambition, it's in a positive way, you know, because I wanted to contribute and uh, I thought I could contribute. And, and this, I think, uh, made me choosing France. That was the selfish personal feeling, but there was another one which was less let's say selfish, also thinking of my husband. I thought that uh, I would not like him to be unhappy in Chile. I would feel very guilty and that wouldn't be very good for our couple. So um, uh, it was the, the good decision. I'm happy that we made it. And, uh, and I think I'm happy we came back to Paris, yes. So, so you were with, with uh, Marc Falous, who's quite legendary in, in Paris, and then with Hido Plow. Um, so what are, are mentoring practices that you picked up from your mentors that you then use in your lab? Um, <laughs> from Marc Falous, uh, <laughs> with all the respect I have him, because he really helped me, uh, I mean, finding fellowships and helping me really when I came to his lab. But as scientific mentor, I, I, I didn't see him so much. <laughs> um, who was really important during my PhD was uh, Catherine Alcaide Loridan. Oh. Uh, she was my direct mentor. And... Uh, and that was wonderful because we were the two of us and we got along so well from all point of view. So I kind of absorbed all what she knew and she knew a lot <laughs> uh, during the PhD. I mean, it was a fantastic research experience working with her. Um, even though then I decided to change subject, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, I learned so much from her. Um, the fact that she was very committed uh, to the work, but... Also, um, you know, very worried about uh, the way experiments are done and not so ambitious, actually. Catherine was uh, not so ambitious, not so uh, obsessed by publication and all these things. Like, So this is what I think I needed during my PhD. Learn to do experiments, to do them well, to be rigorous. And, uh, and then for my postdoc was the time where I could develop my own ambition. And I think the, the lab of Hidepur, uh, where I, where I was, was the perfect place for that. So what I learned from, from Hide is to write papers. That was a super important thing I learned. Um, I learned also some things not to do, which is to, uh, 
put your hands on the your your <laughs> your feet on the table during that meeting. I don't really? do that. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the purpose? But, uh, um, <laughs> no, I, I don't know. He was used to this, and it was something we were making fun of him. You know that during that meeting, who always go back in his chair and put his two feet on the table. <laughs> it was Dutch style, but uh, 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 I also learned from Hida that um, giving some freedom to the people is very positive and being yourself always very enthusiastic um, in in what when they come to with new results and when they come to show you what they've done and and very supportive Hida was extremely extremely supportive never pressuring never um, yes uh, saying unpleasant things uh, very 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 supportive so that that I learned from him after I, I believe that everyone has every PI has to find his own way to to drive his lap. This is very personal, uh, the way we do. I, I don't take myself as an example for anyone else. Sometimes I try to give tips uh, because I think they can be useful, but, you know, uh, everybody has to find his own way. So the worst you can do is to try to imitate other people. And if that this does not correspond to your personality, uh, uh, then it doesn't fit, doesn't work. So I've learned a lot and it, it has been, it's almost 20 years now that I'm a PI, 17 years, I think. And, uh, I made many mistakes. I, uh, and, uh, but I tried to learn from them. I, and, uh, how do you know you made mistakes? Oh, People told I, you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I mean, maybe this is. A quality uh, I learn in psychoanalysis is to learn to make mistakes. It's <laughs> to learn about you, you know, your weakness, your strength, and we all have them. And um, so, it's I think it's important to 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 learn mistake. But the reason I realized I was making mistake is because <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> At some point in the lab, everybody was fighting <laughs> in between each other. I had these two groups, you know, like in Romeo and Juliet, uh, the the. The, the two families that hate each other. Well, I experienced that in my life. Oh, really? People starting two groups like fighting between each other. It was the worst time in my life. I suffered so much of this. It was the only time where I didn't want to come to the lab in the morning. I mean, not enough to decide to leave science, but really to decide <laughs> to take a management class and to progress <laughs> in that aspect. And when I arrived to the management class, I said, well, I thought that I didn't need this class because I'm a natural manager. And the, <laughs> the, the teacher, was, he's a psychologist, very nice guy, um, he said, well, by definition, management is not natural. <laughs> so <laughs> then I understood the mistake I had made. And I learned so much. It lasted a few days, two, three days, and it was wonderful. So uh, this I recommend, for example, to, to everyone. Of course, after I did, I, I took from it what I liked. Uh, other things maybe I, I don't apply, but, um, but this has helped a lot. What, what, do, you, what do you think is, is bad mentoring advice that you've heard or that you've seen around you? Well, putting too much pressure. On, on, on kids, like for sure. I, for me, the worst error that we all make and, and that I made as well is to be uh, auto-referential. Do you say that in English? Auto-referential? Uh, so to think that the, 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 the people in your lab are like you, actually. This is the, 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 the main mistake that we all make. Like we think they are in our head and we think then we feel like we don't need to say things 
you know, because it's obvious, uh-huh. because, you know, we believe that uh, they are like us. And this is not true. I mean, so the most important thing for me today is when people come, before they decide to come, before I decide they will come, I tell them what I will expect from them and the way I work and the way I am as a, as a, as a PI. I, I try to, to, to explain that to them and make sure that they agree with this at the very beginning. And, and this has really helped. So I, I'm trying to rephrase because I find this uh, really interesting. It's like uh, you're putting a lot of, of value on transparency, like you, like you make yourself transparent. So what I, I, I think the, the, the secret for uh, having a lab working well and a big structure, I don't think it's specific of a lab, is to communicate as much as we can. Of course, we cannot communicate all the time because we need to do other things. So to optimize the communication, to be as uh, transparent, as you said, uh, as we can with, you know, very clear word, the same way we do a seminar, we explain our results. Well, to be as clear as that when we talk to each other on what we expect from each other, on uh, what can be done, what cannot be done. And this from both the scientific and the human point of view. So do you have to, 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 to be more specific? So, so I, I agree entirely, but, but people here, you know, communication is important. Do you, do you have some sort of specific or sort of methodological, what, what do you, some, just some specifics of things that you do in your lab that you think help um, improve the communication? So I use a lot to, to communication uh, one-to-one. So what I try to avoid, but I also do it from time to time, but it's a matter of, of doses. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, I kind of balance the one-to-one communication, uh, both again on the science where the, 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 the postdoc and the students come and present me the results, you know, and also the communication as a group. And in the communication as a group, I don't care. I don't really... Uh, um, I, I, I try to optimize the reunions that we have once a week, uh, not only for me to know what they're doing or what they think, but also for them to communicate at best in between each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the end, I'm in my office, they are in the lab. And I think the most important is that they know each other. Uh, they uh, know uh, also the way, uh, you know, again, each other is with weakness and strengths because we all have them. And uh, uh, so that they, they find together the best way to work with each other. And autonomy, yes, autonomy f- for sure is super important in a lab. But then I, I'm present and I'm present to do to support them. I try to be, even though sometimes uh, um, traveling and all these things do not allow me to, do, uh, to be in the lab uh, as much as I would like. But uh, I, I, I'm still... S- try to spend time in the lab and not only in my office in front of my computer, but time to talk to people. And not talking about science only, also talking about other things, about myself, about uh, theirs, about themselves. Uh, but this is easy for me. So again, I, I don't think this everybody should do that because for some people it's difficult to talk about themselves. For me, no, it's not. So it's my natural way to, to lead the lab. For other people, it wouldn't work. And that's fine. I, 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 again, I think everyone has to find his own way and has also to find uh, in recruitment, put a lot of effort in recruitment to make sure that you recruit people that are adapted to, to the way you, you function. Yeah, that's great. And I really like the, 
this idea that you say that um, um, like you should not take for granted the way people think, like just let them know how yes, it works. Exactly. Uh, I really like exactly. that. Thank you for, for sharing this with us. <laughs> wow. um, <Welcome. laughs> through, uh, through your career, um, because we, we heard somehow that you, your path have as you, you change your topics and everything. So mm -hmm. um, how did you choose what to work on? How, how? because we know it's a difficult question. <laughs> Yeah. So, yes, yes, it's difficult. And this was a path of surprises because, as I said, I wanted to be a geneticist. This was based on nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know on what it was based. <laughs> Probably because somebody talked to me about genes someday when I was a kid. But uh, for sure, it was not a scientific decision. It was like intuition. You know, and wrong intuition. Actually. Emotion. So, uh, yes. So I, I discovered genetics uh, uh, during my, my master. Uh, what I didn't like in genetics, as I said, was like um, everything was focused on finding the mutation. So finding the mutation and the disease. But I always thought well, if people are sick, it's not because there's a mutation. What makes them sick is that the cell doesn't work when this gene is mutated and that the tissue doesn't work and that... The body doesn't work. So uh, I was more interested. I realized by then that I was most, more interested about what was happening once the protein was mutated and why this was making the cell not functioning. So there I, I believe I, I really define myself as a cell biologist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is what I am, actually. Before being an immunologist or anything else, I'm a cell biologist. I love cells. Each time I see a movie of cell, I, I, I feel emotional. <laughs> Have you seen Renault's uh, Cell Worlds exhibition? No. I need to send it to you. No. Ah, you have to see it. It's an immersive exhibition about cells. You would love it. I want to see it. <laughs> For me, cells are, are just the most beautiful thing I've never seen. But I didn't know yet because at that time, there was no live imaging of cells, or at least I had not seen any. So then I wanted to do cell biology and I loved immune cells. What I like about immune cells was this idea that they, you know, they're not stuck in some organ, they move around the body. They're, they're everywhere. Like they're curious cells, a little bit like me. I think I identified <laughs> myself to the, to, the, <laughs> to the cells I work with. And so, so then I, I thought, okay, I'll study antigen presentation. I was already working on the genetics of MHC, so the molecules that pr help presenting antigens. And, and that I thought MHC restriction antigen presentation was so fascinating, you know, that we have these molecules to which you have pieces of microbe that bind and this activates T cells. And at the same time, it protects us from having autoimmunity. I thought this was a fantastic mechanism. And uh, uh, therefore, I went to Hidupu. He was the king of antigen presentation, had cloned first HLA gene, and uh, that was the great lab. And he was using biochemistry. He had a chemical, uh, chemical uh, training. He was trained, I think, as, a, as an organic chemist. And uh, so, so I went there and I thought I will interface biology with chemistry. Uh -huh. And I like the idea of interface. And, uh, and uh, so I learned a bit chemistry. I was not very good at it. First, because I was too short. And you need, you know, you need, I had this Dutch chemist working with me and he was 2.5 meters. And 2.5. You have to be tall to be a chemist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you have this huge, you know, this huge, uh, 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 glass uh, uh, devices in which you have to put to do chromatography and everything. So I always had to carry around my little uh, pied d'elephant, you know, my little tabouret <laughs> to be able. And there's a picture where I'm top of, of this, uh, of this uh, 
how do you say a, a, a tabouret? Like a step, how do you say? Yeah. Yes, I'm t- I'm on I'm I'm on the step, and my chemist collaborator is next to me, and he's still taller than I. <laughs> so this is the most ridiculous. So it was fun doing chemistry. I learned, but I again I kind of thought that um, I didn't feel uh, super uh, satisfied about about that as my main activity mm-hmm. because um, it was a little bit like uh, cooking, very empirical. So, oh, this doesn't work, then try this, this, this then try this. So I, I wanted something maybe more, you know, more um, in a framework, more precise framework, not so cooking around, something I could control better. <laughs> and, uh, and this is why when I came back to Curie, and there are two things happens. The first thing is that I went to the, to the lab meeting. So I, I came back with this project about biochemistry and antigen presentation, Bio, uh, biochemistry of antigen presenting cell. Well, I had done some imaging, immunofluorescence, and I liked it a lot. But when I came here, I went to the first UMR meeting, and then I saw someone, I think it was Frank Perez, that show a movie of cells. And there I was petrified. And I thought, oh my God, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so I switched completely project. I mean, I started... M- Yes, I kind of changed completely what I wanted to do. I adapted to to what is was around me at that time, and uh, working still on antigen presenting cells because you know those cells I I, I like a lot. I, as I said, I like the fact that they're sentinels, that they're curious, that they adapt to their environment, and it did exactly the same than them. So I was curious. I went to see what other people was doing around. I adapted. You are your topic. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, exactly. And and so I start developing this imaging of antigen presenting cell in lots of interaction with the cell biologists, developmental biologists. Here, I met. Wonderful people. The atmosphere was very exciting because, you know, the, the building, the cell biology building in Curie had uh, not even 10 years. So, you know, everything was in, in, I mean, there was a lot going on. Let's say it this way. And then uh, the, the second important thing that, that occurred to me was, was that uh, one day I gave a seminar and after my seminar, I had this guy that approached me and said, um, I have some channels and I saw you looking at cells moving, immune cells moving. Maybe we could try to put them in my micro channels. And this was Mathieu Piel and was the start of uh, uh, 20 years of collaboration. And I mean, after this, even half of his lab started working on on dendritic cells uh, as well. And Mathieu had me, made me discover the interface between cell biology and, and physics. And that fascinated me. What I liked a lot is that physicists you know, it's the opposite than organic chemistry. They they come with very simple ideas, simplistic, you know, views to try to explain what you see under your microscope, but with a, a simple model, the minimum of parameters. And that uh, had me kind of uh, relieved, I feel. Because, you know, biologists, sometimes they try to complexify everything. New cytokine, new growth factor, new receptors, new... And uh, immunologists in particular, now with you, you single cells, like new cell types, it's, it's, it drives you crazy, you know? Because when you have a mind that has trouble getting calm, <laughs> all this complexity <laughs> is exhausting. So I, I, I like the view of physicists. They calm me down. They calm yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. That's complimentary. <laughs> because, they, because they can only look at... 
two or three parameters at a exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. They're very, you know, mono, mono, <laughs> monomaniac, but the parameters they choose are the right ones usually. So it makes you, it helps you seeing the essential in a biological system. This is fascinating. Uh-huh. I love I love interacting with physicists. So, so, so why, why, what do you think is important about interdisciplinary research and, and what makes it particularly difficult? So, so physicists are yeah. great because they have less parameters, but, yes. but there must be difficult. What are the difficulties and how do you overcome them in an interdisciplinary project? So the, the important thing, and this I experienced, you know, at every step of my career, uh, about talking to people that, do, that are in different fields, uh, is to prevent you from, you know, getting obsessional with your research object and to open your mm-hmm. mind all the time towards other things. Because I think we scientists uh, are, for most of us, quite obsessional. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, also probably what <laughs> helps us doing our job. But at the same time, being interacting with people that have different views, that are interested in uh, in uh, other aspects of your your biological system uh, makes you really uh, uh, being more open to 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 different ideas. So I think the chances you have to um, you know find unexpected things are are just just higher if you interact with uh, uh, other scientists. I mean scientists from other disciplines. After the difficult part uh, to me is to develop a common language. So I know, for example, so we, we are a, a, a trio. So there's Mathieu Piel, myself. Mathieu Piel, he's a biophysicist. I mean, he's a physicist, but he's also a biologist. He's, he did his PhD in biology and he's also a biologist. And then there's myself, biologist, and Raphael Voiturier. He's a theoretical physicist. I know that without Mathieu, talking to Raphael, I'm not <laughs> sure it would have worked. <laughs> Uh, not be I mean I, I love when Raphael explained me things in very simple manners etc but I think I'm not sure we would have been able together the two of us to develop the common language that would have made both of us interested in uh, uh, in working together Mathieu really generated this interface and that was wonderful so Developing a common language is the key. So, so here in this specific case, but maybe we can try to think about how to, to extend these tips. Or, because here, this person was the, the person was, who was able to translate uh, the two, between the two, the two research topics. Yes. Um, because you, have, you had also other collaboration, or maybe just on this one, say, say how, how would you advise a young scientist to start this kind of inter- interdisciplinary approach does he have to find uh, someone that is able to do this? So again, again, I, I, I think this is dependent on, on the way we are individually. So first, the, the young scientists that uh, will do uh, this type of approaches uh, must be very open and willing to learn things they do not expect, you know, things that will surprise them. I don't think it's the case of everyone. And that's fine because we need all type of scientists. Yes. You know, diversity is what will uh, make science be rich enough to move together. So being open and then, yes, e- really identifying someone with whom you share. You share a common interest. And, and this is not easy. You have to try around and be lucky. For me, it was luck. 
was Mathieu that approached me. And and of course, I was open to this. I mean, you, you, and yeah. after I was super excited because this made me discover a world I did not anticipate. But you you put you put also yourself out there to 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 be seen uh, because you gave conferences and. Of course, and you have to take risk, you know, to take risk of being stupid, <laughs> of saying something that makes no sense. Because when I, of course, when I'm talking to physicists, you know, I'm not a physicist. I had physics class a long time ago and uh, I forgot most of it. So, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes I say, you know, things that are stupid. I, <laughs> that doesn't help them. When I say stupid, it's not correct. It's not, that just the things that uh, might go against the laws of physics, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't matter. So there's also this capacity of take risk, you know, take risk, not be scared of sometimes uh, not looking the smartest person in the world. It doesn't matter what you're bringing to them is what they do not have is your vision as a biologist. Not to try to do physics. And I, I experienced that with the physicists that came to work in my lab, uh, but the other way around. So Paolo, I think maybe because he's like me, he, he tried to, uh, to, 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 to adapt and he tried to, became, to become a biologist. Because he wanted to please me, <laughs> he wanted to, you know, feel like we we would uh -huh. we, we were on the same uh, on the same um, I don't know type of thinking. And at the end, I told him one day, "This is not what I want. I want you to, you know, bring something I do not have, something different." So it's about dealing with difference mm -hmm. and with disagreement, and also taking risk and sometimes accepting that uh, we're not super super. God, you know, there are many things we don't know. It's fine. It's, it's no problem with it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, so the other way around, have you, because you talked you talk before about a Romeo and Juliet case, or I don't know yes. if it was a collaboration <laughs> or something, but have you ever experienced or seen some kind of unhealthy collaboration or unproductive collaboration? No, no. I, I have to say I've been uh, very lucky always to have wonderful collaborators after Some of them, maybe uh, I didn't get as well uh, along with them. So then the collaboration, you know, starts and ends naturally <laughs> of his um, own death. But uh, but but I've always experienced uh, wonderful uh, collaborations with my colleagues. So Mathieu Piel and Raphael Waturier were were were, were one of them. Um, two of them, uh, but uh, then there was Daniela Vinovich, who is a, also a cell biologist working here, and she made me discover the gut. And working with Daniela was again opened me to a new world. It was a time where um, I, I I was a bit. I felt like I needed to look at cells in their natural environment. I had been looking at them a lot in 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 the microchannels and in all type of devices. But I felt like I needed to go back to the natural environment of, of cells to see how all what I had found um, impact on their, their you know, physiology. And um, so I, I turned to Daniela, uh, who was working on the gut. It's a good system for immune cells because it's full of them. It's an incredible interface with microbes. And... Um, Also, because I like Daniela a lot, we had been interacting informally uh, for many years. Uh, and that was, again, a fantastic experience. Like, uh, we, we, we wanted to look at fibroblast and dendritic cells. We ended up looking at macrophage and ep epithelial cells because this is what we found. We were lucky enough also to have a, a PhD student that was amazing, a Russian PhD student that 
had decided that she wanted to discover something important, and this is how we 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 discovered these macrophages that uh, that uh, sense fungi and and that they're based on what they sense. Uh, they they maintain the homeostasis of of the colon, and I, I think this might turn to be uh, important in. Uh, the control of gut inflammation and inflammatory bowel diseases and maybe colorectal cancer. And this is the subject of uh, the ERC advance grant that I, I just got. And again, it was uh, in the context of a collaboration. So so we, we've spoken to several uh, ERC uh, laureates, but I, I think you're the first who has both a starting and an advance. So, so Just what, got the advance. <laughs> so congratulations. So the Thank ERC, you. these are these uh, super grants. Um, how, how has the ERC funding impacted your lab? So for, <laughs> for the starting, starting grant that I had in 2010, I have to say that this ERC starting grant, even though it helped me a lot, of course, starting my lab, uh, at that time of my career, it was uh, a little bit also um, dangerous. And I think what happened in my lab is that I recruited too many people because of the ERC grant. And without having enough experience, as I said, and without maybe not choosing the people well enough, uh, and, uh, so I kind of grew up, my lab grew up a bit fast. And this is where all these internal problems happen because, uh, that I was maybe not prepared to have such a big. So, so there's a, a danger of too much money. There's to a earn. danger, yeah. I think, when you're in an early career okay. to suddenly have all this money. Of course, this is not to discourage people to obtain ERC uh, <laughs> yeah. starting grants. It's <laughs> no. just to tell them that once you have it, you know, be aware that uh, there is there is a danger, and um, yes, management can be useful <laughs> for sure. And be careful choosing the people again, the people to work with. So this was a that was a bit uh, was a bad part of it, but of course, it it also allowed me, uh, you know not worrying about writing too many grants and everything and dedicating myself to science. That was wonderful. I'm just curious because, uh, for example, in France, when you win the lottery, you have some kind of support. Uh, it's a psychological uh, support. <laughs> but I, w I was just wondering if uh, when you have this kind of grant, do you, do you get with this any support, like in, as you said, management how to, we're mentoring, to, yeah. yeah. So I think now, yes, because people have in general realized that, uh, you know, management is useful also because well-being uh, at work and in particular in the lab, something that became important that was not important before, uh, uh, etc. Uh, at that time, not too much. You know, we were among, I was the second generation. So these grants were brand new, mm -hmm. basically, and it was pure excitement to have them. So, um, of course, at that time, we were not talking about too much about these problems that could be generated from this. I think today we have enough distance to, to be able to say yes uh, and to talk to the youngest people and advise them. For example, all the young PI that arrive to Curie, they have a mentor. And uh, also myself as a director, uh, when I have young PIs, I really mentor them. I talk to them. I have lunch with them, and uh, I, I I try to 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 help them in into this. It was not so much the time, uh, the case uh, some years ago. 
glad to hear that that it has changed and this is more <laughs> conscious now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so um, we we read. Uh, I think it was in a Curie article that um, you never felt discriminated as being a woman in science. Uh, but still, uh, you are actively involving in empowering women uh, in research career. And also, I think I heard about something with Chile, too. Uh, could you, um, I mean, why, why do you put so much effort while at the same time you never... Ex I never experienced being discriminated as a woman because uh, I think I'm going to say something very, very simple. Huh? But I, I think that... Uh, You know, my parents and my dad in particular put in me uh, enough ambition, you know, energy and trust, confidence, uh, as if I would have been a boy. I think the drama of many girls is that, um, you know, their parents do not believe in them. And it's, it's so inconscient that uh, it's difficult to change because it's, it's in our unconscious and And then we pass it through education. So how did I come to that? Again, therapy helped. <laughs> and uh, and I, I totally assume this. And uh, because at some point I have a boy and a girl. And at some point, you know, I realized that I had different ambition for them. And I thought this was crazy. I realized that my boy had to be, you know, to save the world. I don't know, to uh, be an astronaut, to go to space and, you know, change everything and, and really save the world, solve the climate problems, you know, like I was putting a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah. on him. So it was not good for poor him. Guy. <laughs> my girl, my girl, yes, poor guy, exactly. My girl, what did I thought about? I, I, of course, I had full trust, even more in her than him, actually. So therefore, I felt like I don't need to put so much, you know, ambition in her. She will do, I trust her. She will do whatever she will want. And when I realized this, I, I hated myself. Of course, the good thing is that I, I realized early enough <laughs> they were still small and I could correct. <laughs> and then my message, and I was in Chile a couple of weeks in a science, ago in a science festival where I, I said that. My message is start, you know, very early on. Believe in your baby girls. Believe that they will be able to become mathematicians as your baby boys. And when you ask them, you know, to wash the dishes, ask this to your boy as much as to your girl. This is simple, simple tips. <laughs> Very simple That's what tips. We want. <laughs> For me, uh, uh, my, to me, the, the fact that I'm passion and that I succeeded to some extent is because my parents really Uh, put all their confidence in me. They believed in me. I think this this is as simple as this than this. Nothing very you know, complicated. <laughs> That's great. So 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 you mentioned Chile. You, you said you stayed in France because you don't think you would have been able to do the same sort of science in Chile. How, how have you maintained links with the Chilean scientific community? And do you see, do you think there is? Can we give um, countries like Chile the chance to do the best science? Yes. So, so yes, I put a lot of energy in that. Uh, uh, I mean, for, for the last, since I think 2015, I've really, after, you know, my lab had been already going on and producing and everything, mm -hmm. I've started, I, I've started to put time and energy 
into the interaction with Chilean scientists. First, because I know wonderful scientists from there, uh, the one that trained me, the immunologists, they're still active because in Chile you cannot retire because retirement is terrible. <laughs> so they're still active and I'm, I, I'm always super happy to interact with them. And, and they're, they do great things. The problem with Chile and is that, um, you know, it's the, it's the critical mass of scientists. It's too small. And then it's isolated. You know, Chile is the end of the world. Nobody goes somewhere passing by Chile. You know, it's final destination. And it's just behind this huge chain of mountain. So it's very difficult because science moves and progress globally. As everything in the world where we, where we are, it's very difficult for them to remain, to catch up all the time. Why? Because it's difficult to have access to the new technologies. And today science is evolving very fast with the new technologies. If you uncouple from this technological uh, progress, it's really difficult to be asking the same question that your community is asking. So um, this is the tough part. I, I try to interact there also by training young scientists that ev eventually go back to Chile. I had several of them. Uh, I also try to go there and uh, try to, to, to you, you know, help them organizing uh, so that they could, for example, team each other uh, to have uh, some technical facilities and that would, would help them. Um, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy because being isolated also come with a, a way of thinking. And it's not so easy to having the people uh, working with each other there neither. So. But I put energy in that and I also learn a lot from them. Sometimes I like the fact that they ask very simple questions, uh, you know, because they are questions that are kind of limited by the instruments and the technologies they have. But they, 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 they do wonderful science. It's just that the science is not as visible as the one that is done in Europe. Also because editors do not go there. When you, when you send a paper as a Chilean, you know, Nature editors, they don't even read them. Read them. So, so, so we're really keen to, to promote science from different places. And I, I even have a dream of a, a Southern Hemisphere um, season where we can, we can talk to scientists from, from non-European and yes, non-US Yes, countries. and uh, it's wonderful. So this has been great. Thank you very much. We're going to take a, sh a, a break. Mm -hmm. And after the break, we're going to hear more about Anna Maria uh, outside of the lab. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Pipette with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette and please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking to Anna Maria Lennon, the number two, so the second, <laughs> Anna Maria Lennon Jr. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and in the first half, we, we had lots about, about how you run your lab and how you think about science. Now we'd like to think more about how you run your life. Um, so... So you're obviously doing a lot of things and you, you, you said you, you need to move and keep moving. Um, do you have a morning routine? What, how does the day start for Anna Maria? You're not going to believe it. 
Go because on. my morning routine. <laughs> my morning routine is at the opposite than what I told you. I have a very calm morning routine. <laughs> Do you know Maria Elena Todes Pardo? Ah, she, yes, yeah? yes, yes. So, so she, she's like you. She's always moving. <laughs> and she actually, she also came from Mexico to do the, to do a PhD in yes. Pasteur. So, um, but she said the morning at breakfast, do not talk to her. <laughs> she needs to start the day very slowly. Exactly. <laughs> so I take breakfast in bed. My husband brings it wow, to me every day. Wow. Wow. Okay. Don't tell my wife. So that's <laughs> <laughs> we keep that definitely in the podcast. <laughs> so, um, and I take my time. <laughs> the clock to, um, rings at 7.30 and I take one hour to take breakfast in bed. Wow. During that time, I drink my coffee. I look at my phone. He, he's dealing with the kids? I talk a little bit. There's no kid. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> This is the advantage of uh, of uh, having had the kids a bit young, uh-huh. is that uh, we could get rid of them <laughs> <laughs> quite fast. <laughs> so the kids, they're there. Yes, they're, 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 our our daughter just left this year. So for the first year, we are we are uh, on our own, and then we discuss, and then I slowly get up and do my yoga, <laughs> and then I'm I'm ready to go. Wow. So I okay. I usually do not arrive very early to the lab. Sometime I had started to work at home, looking at my email, answering the urgent things. And but when I arrive here, I'm I'm full, and I wait a bit. I, I work late usually. I mean late. Okay. Do you but have this a- is a luxury because uh, uh, the kids we don't have to take care of kids anymore. Of course, it was not the same when we had young kids. What's an unusual habit or, or, or something absurd that you love? Ah, something absurd that I love. Well, probably uh, order ordering. You know, uh, no, the comment dire ranger la maison. Ah, um, ah okay. How, how do we say? You, that? Li- you like to tidy up the house. Yes, <laughs> you <laughs> like <Why>? that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it needs to be. I don't know. Again, it's uh, it's it's too. Uh, no, I know why. I know why. Actually, I, I I'm 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 lying when I say I don't know. I I also like to balayer. How do you say that? To to uh, sweep. <laughs> To sweep. I like to sweep. I always say that it's kind of my... I don't know anyone who bizarre, likes to sweep. Bizarre, <laughs> we had bizarre, uh, bizarre um, hobby. And this is why? Because it reminds me my mother. Ah. <laughs> and it's a piece of my mother that I get with me because she lives very far away. I mean, I talk to her almost every day, but she lives very far. And in the morning, we know, you know, when I put everything, I make sure that everything is... is where it should be and that I sweep the floor and everything's perfect, then I think of her. Ah, that's <laughs> nice. That's nice. <laughs> and I can go <laughs> after. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you think about... Uh, but this is really absurd. Yeah, uh, we, <laughs> we like that. <laughs> actually, I like it. I like this it. is really absurd. <laughs> but it's a bit but sick, I, I actually, <laughs> it's, it's linked to something very really nice. So I guess it's like, it's, 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 I don't know. I, fi- I find it really cool, actually. <laughs> if you do uh, something that remind you, uh, remind you the, the people you love, it's just like a way to, to keep thinking about them. That's the purpose. So can you, can you think about an activity so not sweeping. <laughs> yes, not sweeping. <laughs> Outside of science, uh, that has somehow impacted your work or the way you work. So I think all the social activity I have, uh, which is, for example, interacting with friends or 
reading books because when you read books, you meet people. You meet people uh, in the books. Um, going to the theater, to the movie, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, all this uh, impacts me, kind of imprint me and impacts me on the way uh, I do the science because I learn from all those people I meet. What's the book on your bedside table at the moment? Uh, so at the moment, it's a book my daughter gave to me. Uh, let me let me check the name because I forgot. I I don't know why I I cannot remember uh, book names. So the book name is Fille, Femme, Autre, Girl, Woman, Others, and it's from Bernardine uh, Evaristo. So it's uh, it's um, uh, English English author, and uh, and it's uh, it's about women. And black women in particular, uh, through several generations, uh, in, in the UK. And, uh, it's wonderful. So my, my, my girl, she's 19 and she's a really feminist, like much more than I. <laughs> and, uh, and she's kind of training me into this because <laughs> I thought I was feminist, but actually I'm awfully not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I thought I was open mind, but I, I'm not. <laughs> but it's great when your kids. So uh, when she's educating me. Oh. It's great when your kids educate you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But this is a way to progress at the end. This is the purpose of life, you know? Mm-hmm. Progressing. Yeah, that's. Wow. I really like that. <laughs> it's a double. How do you say that? Like when this is double. In, in, in both yes, ways. Yes, it's you know? mutual. Yeah, by it's direction. In both yeah, ways. Exactly. exactly. And this is the basis of evolution, you know. Uh, I mean, life exists because there was a bacteria that, uh, that uh, interacted with the environment and the bacteria change and the environment change also in response to the, bac- to the changes in the bacteria. So this is co-evolution. It's the pr- basic principle of life. And I, I feel like uh, I, I apply it every day, also when I interact with the people around and, and with my family and with my kids, which is the most difficult thing in, in, the, in, the, in life. Huh? Well, being Having a parent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. This is it's like even complete. more difficult than having your husband bring you breakfast in bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For me, yes. For him, maybe not. <laughs> you, should, you should teach your kids to bring you breakfast to bed. <laughs> but, I, but I think... Uh, They're too busy. But, um, placing parenting in the context of co-evolution, I think, makes it a little bit easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. This is a way to make my life easy. I fully agree with this. Yeah. yeah. You know, instead of staying in my rigid principles. No. Let's, let's try to see what I have in front and, and adapt. Again, it's about adaptation. Talking about uh, adaptation, how do you balance work and personal life? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I, I, I mean, I, when I say I don't, it's not that there's no balance between work and, and, and personal life. It's that it's, um, it's not something uh, that I calculate. That it's, there's no theory behind it's just I work, and at some point I'm just tired of working. Uh, <laughs> to do something else. Well, you listen to yourself. That's a good tip, actually. <laughs> yes, I listen to myself exactly. Again, it could be about adaptation, you know, to the uh, to the environment, to my own body, or whatever. At some point, I just had enough, and I want something else, and I want to be with people and to talk around or to go to the movie, to the theater again. Um, Yes, it's so it's something kind of um, natural. Of course, today it's easy because I don't have small kids to take take care of. When I was 
a young mom, it was much more complicated. And uh, and there, yes, I, I we needed to have some type of organization, you know, one going home at 5.30, the, the other one the day after. But again, my husband completely played the game and he never, he took cares, care of the kids more than I, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> to be honest, there, because there's five working days in the week and I was going early only two and he was going three. <laughs> <laughs> so is there an, um, an individual, either real or fictional, um, that particularly inspired your, your life and work? So you mentioned well, your mother and your father, but... And my aunt, my and sci- aunt, yeah. my aunt yeah. scientist, uh, that for sure <laughs> was a uh, yeah. And uh, and again, there's many people I crossed during my career. For example, I also mentioned Catherine Loridan, uh, yeah, yeah, Loridan. Yeah. who's my colleague person, actually, and and was one of those teachers. Yeah, was my yes, teacher yes, actually. Yes. Yeah. So Catherine really influenced me because of her, uh, you know, re- at the same time responsibility, but also. Her, her, she's she's someone that doesn't care about her being, uh, uh, you know, successful or about gaining uh, um, credits and uh, being famous or whatever. She just gives a lot. She's into giving, and this this is something that I found very inspiring. First, because I benefited of it, and she gave me a lot when I was a, a PhD, and also. Because uh, maybe I'm not naturally like that, mm-hmm. and it it's good for me to see that in other people because it takes me to the you know to the to the good side. We all have like a, a good side and a dark side, and <laughs> seeing people that have good sides is good to to have our good sides. <laughs> you know, taking more space sometimes. <laughs> You you were successful. You you, you got a, a, a ERC and another in then another one. So. There is a question we <laughs> we started to ask for this season too. It's if you had one hundred million dollars or euros to spend in science, mm-hmm. but not yes. in experiments, how would you spend them? Ah, I know perfectly ah. <laughs> because this is my dream. Oh, I would make something that I will call the Institute of Nice People, <laughs> and those are all the nice people, nice scientists I've met in my career. And really, there are so many of them. They are all different, um, you know, male, females, uh, all nationalities and uh, origins and everything. And uh, I would love to, to, to make an institute with all these wonderful people um, <laughs> where we could, you know, work together with our, let's say, principles and uh, and dreams mix our scientific dreams i'm just thinking that that when i hear you i'm just like yeah that's super nice idea idea and even more if we could create a, a kind of nobel prize for the nice people that help the other <laughs> scientists like let's create a i don't know nobel prize for mentoring or for helping scientists like putting yeah that would others be great before themselves <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the institute of nice people that's that's <laughs> that's my dream Um, so flipping the question the other way around so from the big dream to the small practical can you think of a purchase of less than a hundred euros that that impacted your life you can take your time (laughs) purchase of less than a hundred dollars that impacted my life what it's okay if you can't no pressure ah yes no no I know I Ah. know of course I know (laughs) le le, le zester Ah, <laughs> what, what's that? <laughs> it's 
you know, it's uh, to, because I love to cook. Oh. Yeah. And to cook, we, you, uh, you, and I cook a lot with this, this uh, Ottolenghi, you know, I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm all, a big Ottolenghi all fan. Everybody. So, so he, he used a lot lemon zest. Ah. Yeah. So having a zester, a zester to make the zest, <laughs> that's, that's, that really impacted my, life, my cooking life, which is important, the cooking life. Yeah, sure. Very important. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said you didn't like chemistry because you were too short and it was too much cooking. Yes, exactly. Because I cook at home, so I don't want to cook too much in the lab. And I think that well, when I stopped, to yeah, <laughs> you don't have to be tall. And when I stopped cooking in the, in the lab, because when I stopped doing experiments, because I became a PI, then I started cooking more at home. So I think there's a real, real kind of Me balance too. in between. Me both. too. But I always see? say I don't miss lab yeah. work because yes. now I cook at home. No, exactly. Nice. Me too. Exactly. That's exactly the same. It's true that I started to cook too because I left research, <laughs> lab research. Uh, to both of you, I highly recommend a zester. Zester, buy a zester. okay. We'll look at it. <laughs> you go we'll to, the, the to the BHV, shooking shelf in BHV, cooking, cooking, uh, you what know, does rayon, a zester uh, look like? in BHV. So it's, um, it's like a knife, but it has a, a little, uh, Metal piece at the end where you you can ah, apply well, it like ah, that very okay. simply, and it takes out little pieces of, ah, I'm of sure it's zest. A game changer, yeah. Yes, and then the best <laughs> is when really. you have frozen your lemon. You freeze your lemons, and then it works even better. Ah, wow! Well, that's There's a really good Lengi tip. would be proud of me. <laughs> I'm sure. There's a tip. <laughs> I mean, I love to do mojito, so I I, I believe that it will, it will help me. Yes, mojito is <laughs> delicious. What is an achievement that you're that you're proud of? I'm, uh, I'm proud to have trained all the people I have trained because I see them succeeding for many of them very well. And this makes me super happy. Like I have PIs in France, PIs in Chile. Uh, I have trained Chilean, for example, that have got PI position in France. This, this makes me very proud because to some extent, it's, it's like uh, helping Chilean also uh, becoming uh, the scientists they want to become. Um, and, and in the lab, I feel very proud when they are happy, when they made a nice discovery, published a nice paper, you know, um, nice PhD, all these things I, I, f I, feel, I feel proud of. I mean, usually I feel more proud when it's about others than when it's only about me. Of course, I'm proud of having ERC advanced because I'm proud of having tried uh, many times before succeeding and not abandoning. And uh, okay, going ag again. And at some point, you know, you need all stars align. It's really about being at, at the right place at the right time. And and yes, I'm 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 proud of of uh, of having this type of success. But it's true when when people like my my students tell me uh, how much I have. Uh, you know, I mean, how much they mm -hmm. learned from me and how much they, it was important for them to be in the lab. Uh, this, this made me very proud, probably. Can, can you think of an apparent failure that set you up for later success? Well, the one I mentioned, you know, when, when, when my lab turned out to be like a, a, a ring, a combat, like a box ring <laughs> with people like shouting each other Ooh, I mean, they were not wow. hitting each other but uh, shouting each other like hating each other and everything and that for me was completely my failure it was completely my failure because i i was not able to you know to 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 prevent this i even simulated i think this i wanted to 
you know, when people don't like each other, I wanted to make them like each other and kind of intervene. But that at the end was negative. And this was terrible for me. It was a terrible failure. And uh, I think I've learned a lot from it. Again, better choose the people that uh, you know will well adapt to the way you, you, you function. And uh, uh, also being very alert alert all the time that uh, things can go wrong in the lab because things are because because research is difficult it's all about failure and about uh yes not you know competition and failure is very present also because the condition of work are not always ideal for the young people they know that it's very competitive they also know salaries are really bad and um here in curie there's too many very positive things, but it's also true that uh, there's not a lot of space as well. So there are a lot of packed uh, uh, one on top of each other's, and uh, yeah. So being alert and making sure that uh, they have the good conditions to work. How did you solve this box matching? I mean, you, without well, getting into uh, details, but there was did you two. Find there was two levels. The first level, I talked to everyone. And I simply said that uh, that this is not possible and that if, I mean, this has to stop because if not, they have to go. And then uh, everybody understood that they had been, they went too far and uh, uh, kind of recover normal uh, behavior. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, since, and after the people started leaving one by one, yes, it took a few years. So, so previously you mentioned Uh, about the notion about taking risk, uh, I wanted yes. to to ask you a bit more about that. It's because it, it looks like you mentioned that this is really important to like you you have to somehow to do it, uh, but still this is taking a risk. So how how do you manage that? How do you put yourself into risk without? I think again in my case it's a bit natural. It's, it's natural. I naturally take risk. It doesn't mean that I'm not, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I'm reasonable. I'm a reasonable person. But I naturally take risk because I'm not always thinking <laughs> of, you know, the worst thing that could happen if I do this or I'll All do right. that. So this is the way my, my mind is set up. I think that today, because of the... Um, of the evolution of the society, you know, to, to go towards this uh, uh, principe de précaution, uh, we, we have a tendency to uh, more and more be thinking about the worst that could happen and to try to avoid and go towards zero risk. And this is very dangerous. <laughs> Going to zero risk is more dangerous to me than taking risk. Uh, because, uh, because first, it, it's, it makes difficult to follow your dreams. And, and if nobody follows his dreams, I mean, it's a, it's a disaster. <laughs> like everybody will be unhappy. So, um, and also because it, I think it allowed a bit the, the administration and, And, you know, to take power around us, like we have rules all the time. I mean, they're not all, always uh, unreasonable. Some rules are good, like, for example, to put all the chemical in a, in a shelter is, is, is reasonable. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no reason to, to, to take, you know, the risk to affect our health because we, we, this is not difficult to do. But sometimes it goes too far. And it's to protect some people, some mysterious people that are behind and that we never see. <laughs> and they made our, make our life 
really, really painful. And this is a bad evolution of, of science. I'm personally scared that soon we cannot do science anymore because of this, because our, all our technicians, for example, in the lab today, they have no time even to do bench work because they're busy like responding, making sure that people follow all the rules that the inspection, that Europe, that you know, administration in putting on us. And, and, and this is tough because to do research, we need to take risk. This is the definition, by definition, uh, an important part of our, of our work. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, really worried with this, I have to say. I see the evolution the last uh, three, four days, uh, even in an institution like here, Curie, where we are very protected. But even here, I see the evolution where more and more rules, more things we cannot do, more things. And always with a good reason, like something that is supposed to be a good reason. But I don't feel there is evaluation of the risk. And then you evaluate the risk and then you take measures to adapt it to this evaluation. This, this is to me the good way to go. Today, I have the feeling we are, there is a risk, so then we take a measure. But even but, if but this risk this, is very uh, low. Yeah. You think this administrative uh, obsession with risk also means that we take less risk uh, intellectually and creatively? At, at the, uh, yes, of course. At the end, it will mean that because, uh, uh, because uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, first because of, of, of the time we will, everyone in the lab will spend doing the research and the reading and everything that is decreased by all these rules that... Uh, prevent us from, you know, that sometimes takes take a lot of time to be applied and uh, a lot of precautions and everything. So this this is a simple reason. And then also because, uh, of course, if we cannot, for example, do uh, uh, an experiment because we didn't write in our in our, I don't know, DAP that we were going to use 12 mice and not six mice. And then we use 12 uh, 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 and this would be the right experiments to do. So we do the wrong one, etc. It's a problem. Mm. It's, it's really a problem. And also because to thinking and putting so much energy in this, in, in filling tables, in writing, you know, DAPs, protocols, stuff, legal stuff is, it makes us dry. It dries us from our creativity, mm -hmm. I think, scientific creativity. So it's a problem. I think it's really, really a problem. Thanks for that, that plea. <laughs> so, so we're going to wrap up. I, we like to ask a question at the end. If, if you were to meet yourself 20 years ago, you just, just got off the plane from Santiago, what, what advice would you give yourself? To stop crying, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Because I was crying when I got off the plane. Oh, really? Yeah, I would tell myself, stop crying. <laughs> You're going towards uh, wonderful things. I'm, 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 I'm really happy to, to... Yeah, I was crying for these 10 days, but didn't last so much. But um, I, I, I would also tell my, myself to, to be... Um, yeah, to dream. To dream. What I probably did, but yes, to allow me to dream. Exactly. So thank you. Um, before we close this, this podcast, uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? 
you want to share where? it. Yeah, where? Like, do we have a website, blog, something you want to share? So with the us? website is not very good because I have to say I don't put a lot of energy in taking care of it. But I think there's uh, someone now that's gonna is gonna make. Um, I mean, is gonna get involved in in helping me with this. Uh, you can uh, for sure find things. There are there's two articles written on myself. One in JCB. It was you know this portrait they do. Uh, and one one in um, in current biology, so those are, are also good. And if not, just in PubMed, like all my publications are there. Um, are there other things? Interviews, maybe. Yes, there's a YouTube conference I gave in Spanish <laughs> a couple of weeks ago in this uh, science festival in Chile. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think of anything else <laughs> right now. Sorry. Thank you. So Anna Maria, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> Thank do you have you. any? I had a lot of fun. Do you, I, we said we promised it would be fun. <laughs> so, so do you have any any closing um, remarks? Anything you want to add? I, I mean, just let's let's thank you for doing this. I I I, I think this is wonderful to to have people discover uh, our profession, which. Uh, really deserves to be discovered because it's a wonderful profession. Um, I feel so lucky to be able to do it. And, uh, and uh, because, you know, it's no routine. It's, I decide how I do it every day. And, and this is great, even if there are some difficult aspects to it. So thank you for having research discovered by, by everyone and telling about us to the public. Thank you. That was great. Thank you very much. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to The Lonely Pipet mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show. And remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the lonely pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt.